Well, week after week, one of the joys I have here is just to kind of shine a spotlight on the ways in which God is working. And being gone a couple of days, uh, I was thinking about this morning and just kind of wondering, what would I have heard when I was gone? You know, just not being around, not seeing what God is doing, just wasn't sure. And actually coming back from being gone a few days, it's amazing. I've got more stories to share than I've got time of the ways in which God is working among us. And one of them I want to share with us this morning is just the reality that on two different occasions this week, I heard people here in our church get together with others who are not in their group. Not in a group of friends that they normally hang out with or, or not in a group that they study the Bible together, but purposely reaching out to others in the church like family to love each other, to care for each other, and to just sit across the table and say, how are you doing? Guys, that's awesome. That's what we talk about, wanting to gather as a family. We want to be a people who love one another, who care for each other, who pray for each other, and are just in each other's lives. And so I just want to praise God for that, and then I want to ask the Lord to continue to do that work in us as a church. Let me pray uh, to prepare our hearts again this morning. Father, we thank you for this past week, just the stories of different people here at Sunbury City Church getting together, connecting, loving one another, pointing each other back to hope of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for that work. God, I pray that you continue to form us and mold us to be a family, to be the kind of people who love one another like brothers and sisters and are able to point each other back to you. And so, Father, now, as we turn our attention to your word, would you open our hearts, help us to see. May we come hungry May we be eager to hear what you have for us this morning, we pray. In your son's precious name, amen. If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it and turn with me to Psalm 144. Psalm 144. We're continuing on in our summer in the Psalms series called Joy in the Psalms. We're kind of bridging a gap, if you will. This spring, we looked at the letter to the church at Philippi and just understood that we as a people... One of our greatest ways to testify to Jesus is to have joy in him. And we saw that the way we have joy is by understanding more of who he is. And now this fall, we're going to jump into the letter to the church at Rome, where we're just going to look at what is God like? Like, who is he? What is he like? And the reality is hopefully that will produce more joy in us. And so as we're looking at Psalms 135 to 150, kind of the crescendo of the entire book of Psalms, we see chapter after chapter after chapter of the psalmist battling different emotions before finally just ending on a high note of praise in God. And that's the kind of church that we want to be. We want to be a people reminding one another to praise God. So uh, I'm about to say something that I know might be a little controversial for us as a church. It's probably something I shouldn't do, but a couple of years ago, my family decided that we wanted to go on vacation to New Jersey beaches. 
Any of you love New Jersey beaches, right? Yeah, I know some of you just, just love them. Uh, some of you, any of you like love just taking vacation to the same spot year after year after year, right? Like, yeah, we love that. And so my family thought, you know, let's find a beach community that, that we can frequent and continue to go year after year after year. And so uh, apparently there's a couple of things I look for in a beach community. One is, I don't want to pay to get on the beach. Two is, I don't want to pay to park at the beach. Three is, there's got to be shops with peanut butter ice cream close to the beach. And four is, if I've got to walk far to the water, game over. It's done. And so we, we go out to the New Jersey beaches, and we frequented a couple different places and realized they were hitting one for four. And so uh, it was funny, the next year we were kind of planning, what are we going to do for our vacation? And so every other year, we tend to vacation with one side or the other. And, and it was the turn to go to my parents' family, or my parents' house in California, to go visit my family. I remember immediately, I told my wife, we've got to go to a California beach. Because those, I mean, it, it hits all four. No parking, I mean, you don't have to pay for parking, you don't have to pay to get on. The beach is right there, there's ice cream right there. Awesome. And so I do all of the searching, trying to figure out what's the best hotel, where is there awesome, authentic Mexican food close to the hotel, is there a burger joint close. I do all the research, and we find this place close to Huntington Beach, California. If you've ever heard of surfing, like that's the capital of the world. And so we go on, and we just have a blast. Now fast forward two years, and it's time to go back out to California to visit my family. And Alicia and I were talking, what are we going to do this year? Like, like we're going to visit family, but, but what else are we going to do when we're out there? And immediately I was like, uh, we've got to go back to Huntington Beach. We've got to stay at the same hotel because I know that Mexican restaurant's like five minutes away. I know that burger joint's five minutes away. I know the beach is 15 minutes away. We've got to stay in the same place and we've got to relive the vacation from before. Now, why is that? Why do we do that? Because we love things that have enduring value, don't we? We love things that bring incredible value to us to the point that years later we want to re-experience them because they still have value to us today. And unfortunately, our world is telling us constantly of things that we should value, and yet they do not endure. They are things that we value that promise life, and in a matter of seconds, minutes, days, or years, they leave us dry and thirsty for more. We are a people created for something longer, for something more enduring, for something greater, for something with more depth. And this morning, we're going to see what that is. And what we're going to see is that it is the grace of God that has enduring value. It's the grace of God where we can actually begin to experience joy in life once again. And so this morning, what we're going to see in our passage is that joy comes, joy comes when we focus, when we praise God for his past grace, and we use that to actually plead for present and future grace. 
You see, the grace of God has an enduring value that we cannot get enough of. And he keeps lavishing it upon us. And we want to kind of stare at this for a moment this morning. And so uh, with that, let's go ahead and read Psalm 144. And as we do here, we just stand. And so would you stand with me as we read God's word? This is to honor the reality that the king of the universe is speaking to us right now. This is not my words. This is the words of the Lord. Psalm 144. Blessed be the rock, blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. He is my steadfast love and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield, and he in whom I take refuge, who subdues peoples under me. O Lord, what is man that you regard him, or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. Bow your heavens, O Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains so that they smoke. Flash forth the lightning and scatter them. Send out your arrows and rout them. Stretch out your hand from on high. Rescue me and deliver me from the many waters, from the hand of foreigners." whose mouth speak lies, and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. I'll sing a new song to you, O God. Upon a ten-stringed harp, I will play to you who gives victory to kings, who rescues David from his servant, from the cruel sword. Rescue me and deliver me from the hand of foreigners, whose mouth speak lies, and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. May our sons and their youth be like plants full grown, our daughters like corner pillars cut for the structure of a palace. May our granaries be full, providing all kinds of produce. May our sheep bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our fields. May our cattle be heavy with young, suffering no mishap or failure in bearing. May there be no cry of distress in our streets. Blessed are the people to whom such blessings fall. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. And all God's people said, praise be to God. You may be seated. So the book of Psalms is kind of a comforting book, right? Because it feels like in the matter of a chapter, the psalmist is like a yo-yo, kind of bouncing between different emotions, And the reality is, is if we're not careful, we can allow our circumstances and what we see going on around us or what we experience and feel to kind of toss us around. And this morning, I want to just kind of ground us as we move forward, to to kind of ground us, to not base our life upon what we see, but rather base our life upon faith. Any of you remember those toy cars that you wind up really tight and it shoots forward, right? Imagine the grace of God wound up, propelling our lives forward, but never slowing down. And that's what the psalmist is going to show us. And he's going to do that by walking us through three stages. And so let's look at this. The first stage that he shows us is praise for past grace. So often, in order to go forward, we have to actually look to the past. 
And I think one of the reasons why we say that history repeats itself is because we don't ever want to look backwards. And yet the psalmist is exactly where he goes. Look at verse 1. He starts off just with this idea of blessed. Now this idea of blessed is kind of a, a, a weird idea for us today because we don't just kind of walk around and say, blessed, right? But there's a reality that in this blessing, the psalmist realizes that he is in a lower position and the Lord is in a higher position and he is to praise him. He is to honor him. And so he just starts off with the psalm, just praising God, focusing on God. And there's a reality for us, right? The reality is that to do this, we actually have to be humble. That's kind of scandalous in the world that we live in today that says everything is about you and your happiness. And the psalmist is saying, no, it's not about you. It's about the Lord. We've got to make all of our life about the Lord. Blessed be the Lord. Then he gives us a couple of reasons that he blesses the Lord. Notice what he says. He immediately says that the Lord is my rock. He's saying, praise God because he's immovable. Any of you have friends that like will say one thing to you one day and then the next day they change their mind and, and you're just like, I don't have a clue where I stand with him. I actually got a phone call this week. Somebody in the community called me and said, I heard you said this about me. I'm like, whoa, time out. That's not what happened. Somebody flipped on me. And the psalmist is saying, God never flips on you. He's immovable. He's steady. He's sure. He's there. You can constantly run to him and cling to him. And then he gives us another reason. Look at what he says next. He says he trains his hands for war and his fingers for battle. If you look at the top of the psalm, it, it uh, ascribes a song to King David. And you can just imagine King David remembering the wars from the past, you know, just kind of sitting in his chair, just thinking about his life. And as he does, he, he sees every victory. He says, God did it. God showed up. God was there. The only reason why I could do that is because of God. He's remembering the work of the Lord. He is attributing everything that has happened good in his life to God. You know, that's why I think it's such a troubling thing for us to believe that God won't ever give us more than we can handle. Ever hear that before? God will never give you more than you can handle. If you can handle it, where is God in that equation? You don't need him. Church, God regularly gives us more than we can handle so that we actually have to realize how small and minute we are so that we go back to the Lord. This is what David's doing. He's not saying, look at the battles I've won. Our kids right now are learning about David and Goliath. You want to talk about bragging about something the rest of your life, like hanging out with a family? You know I killed a nine-foot giant, right? David says, no, God did that. He gives God the glory in all of it, and he remembers what God has done. And then he continues to remind himself of more of God's character. Look at verse 2. He says, his steadfast love. 
He says that God has a love for him that is unwavering. Man, how fickle our lives are, right? How easy it is for us to love one thing one day and hate it the next. And the psalmist just says, man, I, God is steadfast. He's immovable. There's, there's nothing that will change. It is not based on our circumstances. It's actually based despite our circumstances. Do you know that? Romans 5.8 tells us that God demonstrated his own love for us. That while we were still sinners, not when you cleaned yourself up, not when you made uh, right with everybody, not when you somehow came to God looking the prettiest, best that you could, but while you're still sinners, Christ died for us. Steadfast love despite circumstances. And then he continues. He says that he's his fortress. He's his security. The, the enemy can't press in. The enemy can't push back. God is the one protecting. I mean, think about how freeing that is. So often we feel like we have to kind of have life put together, right? So often we feel like we have to kind of build our walls and, and make everything look pretty. And, and so often we have to somehow figure things out. And someone says, no. God is the one. He is the fortress. He is the one that holds us in place. But he's not just someone who protects us. He's someone who also is on the offensive. Look at what he does in verse, the end of verse 2. He's our shield. He's the place that we run to take refuge. To be relieved. To find comfort. You know, uh, so often what I find is a lot of our struggles go back to the reality that we're running everywhere else for comfort than Jesus Christ. It's interesting if you uh, actually flip ahead to Jeremiah chapter 2, you will find the people of God gathering, uh, the people of God in their land and they're rebelling against God and the prophet Jeremiah goes And as he goes, he proclaims to the people that you are making wells that have holes in them. What in the world is a well? Like, what good does a well with holes have? Nothing, right? We're hoping for living water, and yet all it does is just leaks out constantly. And yet, then we jump ahead to John chapter 4, and we see Jesus coming to a woman in Samaria, and as she's at this well, she's there in the middle of the day, and Jesus comes, and he says, hey, could you give us some water to drink? And she's like, whoa, whoa, time out. We, we don't do this. You're a man, I'm a woman. You're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. We don't do this. And Jesus says, no, if you knew who was asking, I would give you living water. And as they talk, Jesus says, hey, go get your husband. She's like, whoa, I don't have a husband. You're right. You've actually had five. And the one that you're with right now is not even your husband. What was she doing? She was running to places, running to men for comfort. And Jesus is saying, I am offering to you living water. 
Church, so often we run to all of these gadgets or to family or to fun or whatever it is, thinking that that will give us some sort of comfort when comfort is offered to you and I through Jesus Christ. We just have to come and drink. And the psalmist is saying, go to him. Find your refuge. Find your comfort in him. Why? Because he is the one who subdues the peoples. Don't we see this in the cross of Christ? That our greatest enemy, death, is conquered. Sin is conquered. Satan one day will be bound and thrown into a lake of fire forever. He has subdued every single enemy before us. That's why we can run to him. That's why we can go to him for our refuge, for our comfort. And the psalmist just keeps reminding himself of this reality. It's almost as if he is experiencing it and reliving it in the moment. And the reality for us is that, that this is what we need to do regularly, guys. We need to be a people who are regularly reminding ourselves of the work of God. So often we're, we're distracted by life. We're distracted by activity. We're distracted by technology. We're distracted by so many other things bombarding us. And we just need to pause and reflect on the grace of God that brought us this far. Do you do that? Do you regularly take time to just press pause and just remember what God has done? Because that's what the psalmist is doing. And it's out of that reflection that it's actually going to propel him to plead for present victory. That's what we see next, is him pleading for present victory. Look with me at verses 3 to 4. Again, we see the humility. It's so interesting that uh, someone who follows Jesus Christ could walk around like they're the most arrogant or prideful person in the world. Because what is the cross? We moved the cross. It's over here. What does the cross of Jesus Christ say? It says that I've got nothing to offer. He had to do it all. And so it should humble us. And it humbles the psalmist. Look at, as he thinks about God regarding him, he says, what is man? Who am I? That you would think of me. That you would take notice of my life. What is man? He, his life is like a breath. His days are a passing shadow. We're here one moment and gone the next. Right now, there are 7 billion people on the world. That means there's probably over 10 to 15 billion people ever walk the face of this earth. And God knows you. You know, some of us this morning might feel like we are distant from God or that we're an outcast or that how could God love me? How could God care about me? And the psalmist says he knows you. And that should be humbling. That should cause an awe in you. And it actually should cause you to pray, to press into this God who knows you. Because that's what the psalmist does. Look at verse 5. He pleads and he says, bow your heavens, O Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains, 
so that they smoke. Now, what in the world is he talking about here? Well, if you go back to the book of Exodus, you will find the people of God rescued out of slavery, 400 years of slavery, brought out into the desert, and a man named Moses, who's leading them, goes up on the top of the mountain. And what happens? God descends down in smoke. He touches the top of the mountain. Do you realize how crazy that is, church? Because no other God up to that point ever came down to humans. Every other God was was an angry God that the humans somehow had to appease and make happy. And now for the first time we see in the course of history a, at least a God coming down. On top of the fact that when man sinned, we are to forever be apart from God and God in his grace comes to you. Comes to Moses. You see how crazy this is? Now the psalmist is saying, do that again. I want to be in your presence. Would you show up again? Do you plead for God to do that in your life? Do you take time morning by morning by morning to just pray? Just open up God's word and say, God, show up now. Help me to see, help me to know, help me to experience you. But he doesn't want God to just show up. He wants God to actually fight on his behalf. Look at verse 6. He says, flash forth lightning and scatter them. Send your arrows out and rout them. He wants God to be the one to fight for him. That's hard for us as Americans, isn't it? Because, man, we, we want to fight, don't we? We are fighters and we are winners. And there's nothing else. I, I was talking with a, a friend the other day, and we were talking about the Olympics, and I'm not paying attention at all. Anybody watching the Olympics? Paying it? Okay, right. Immediately the conversation turned to the reality that apparently the United States doesn't have the most golds. Is, is that correct? Has that changed at all? Right. Apparently we don't have the most golds. And I could just tell this friend, like, it just kind of irked him. Like, we're America. We should have the most gold. We should have the most, but we are the best, right? It's our attempt to just jump in and just fix the problem. And the psalmist just backs up and says, whoa, I need God to fix the problem. I need God to intervene. I need God to fight my enemies. And I'm going to rest in the power of God. Church, how freeing is that? When you and I can rest in the power of God, when we can rest in the justice of God, that means I can be free from anger. I can be free from bitterness. I can be free from seeking out my own ways of justice. I can just be free to enjoy the Lord. Do you experience that freedom? It's a freedom that's offered to us. And all we got to do is just rest in Him. Stop taking it into our own hands to bring our hurt to God and let him be the judge. Let him be the jury. You know, too often in our lives I find that we're, 
we're trying to be all for everyone. We think that if we can just do everything, then, then, then we're almighty. And so this kind of plays out in a couple of ways. We, it might play out in the political world. If I just vote right, if I just have the right uh, ideology, if I just have the right methodology, if just the right leaders in our country are in place, then finally the evil that we experience will be gone. 250 years old, how's that working for us? It's not. Or we might take this approach with our families. If I can just get my kids to obey, if I can just get my kids to operate the way that I want, if I can just get my family to to be the picture that I want. How's that working? It's a lot of weight, isn't it? It's heavy for us. Or it might happen for us in our jobs, if I can just work harder, if I can just do better, if I can just get that raise, or if I can just uh, get that promotion, or if I can just retire, then life will be better. And in each situation, we're, we're trying to do it in our own power rather than running to the Lord, rather than pleading and asking God to show up, asking God to move in our family. Guys, do you pray for your families? Before you ever teach them anything, do you sit before God and pray for your kids? Dads, do you pray for your wives and your kids? I don't care how old your kids are. You know, there's a reality that in many senses, dads kind of set the tone. Actually, a friend of mine a couple years back just kind of was saying, hey, the way that you come home just kind of sets the tone for everybody. If you're a dad in here and you still got kids at home, try it. I mean, the home might be chaotic in one sense. They might be having a lot of laughter. If you come in cranky, the whole home changes. Am I right? Dads? Right? Moms are like, yeah, yeah, that's true. Right? Dad, we've got to, men, we've got to be a people who love our family enough that we will pull back and pray and plead to God on their behalf. To set the tone of dependence upon God that it's not what you can do, but it's what He can do. And then the psalmist continues. He's asking in verse 7, he says, stretch out your hand from on high, rescue me, deliver me. Notice what he wants deliverance from. From many waters from the hand of foreigners, from those who speak lies. All sorts of things that are evil or dangerous. He's just saying, God, protect me from from whatever might hurt me emotionally, spiritually, physically. Just protect me because I can can have the greatest alarm system ever. I can have my gun laying right next to my bed. Whatever it is that you think you do to protect yourself, you say, no, it's ultimately God that does it. God, help. God, protect. And then notice what he does. In the midst of that, he doesn't just stay pleading for present victory. He actually, in the middle of this, this pleading, he actually begins to take steps of faith. 
I think so often what we do is we will maybe pull away and we will pray, and then it's like we're expecting something to happen in the room, like some sort of lightning to come down or fire to happen, and we're like, well, that didn't happen, so I'm going to go back to do my own way of life. That's not what the psalmist does. He prays, he pleads, and then he takes a step of faith as if God is already going to do it for him. Look at what he does in verse 9. He says, I'm going to sing a new song to you. This prayer hasn't been answered yet, but I'm going to praise you despite that. I'm going to sing to you, God. I'm going to get my harp out, and I'm going to play to you. Any, any harp players in here today? None, right? Not a single one of us. But you have a gift, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that is meant to be used to, pray, to praise and honor and bless the Lord. That's all the psalmist is doing. He's saying, I'm going to take a step of faith despite the fact that I don't have an answer to this prayer and I'm going to take that step and use my gift to honor God. Church, do you know your gift? Do you know the way that God has wired you and gifted you? And are you actively taking steps of faith to use that to bless others and to praise God? Notice the faith that takes And as he praises God, he praises God for the victory that he's given to kings. He praises God that he's rescued David, his servant, from the cruel sword. And now he's asking for rescue. He's asking for deliverance. He stands between the now and the not yet. He realizes that that God has achieved victory, and yet he's pleading for greater victory. Church, that's where we stand today. We know in the cross of Christ that there's victory, and yet we're pleading for that greater final day when victory will come. And the psalmist just says, he just pushes out, and he just trusts the Lord, and he just walks by faith, not by sight. Too often, I think, we walk by sight. So our emotions go up and down, back and forth, because it's all based on what we see. And the psalmist says, no, no, no. I'm going to submit my emotion, I'm going to submit my feeling back to the Lord. And that actually then propels him, and it actually then begins to give him a greater vision for what God can do in the future. And that's what we're going to see next, is that he actually begins to plead for future grace. And this is monumental for us. I want to speak to the dads just for a second in here. I want to speak to the men. Because even some of you young kids, I hope, will grow up and have your own family. There is a reality of what this psalmist is doing that I hope and just want to encourage and even plead that this is your heart and your prayer for your family. Because he has a vision for his family that he immediately brings it to the Lord and just asks God to move and to show up. Do you have a vision for your family? Are you actively thinking, how can I help my child or how can I prepare myself for kids to point them back to Jesus? 
Because notice what he does. Look at verse 12. He says, may our sons in their youth be like plants full grown. When I was a kid, we lived in a neighborhood, and uh, it was the weirdest thing. The guy who developed our neighborhood, uh, he had some weird ideas. Because every neighborhood he built, he left one lot vacant, and the story goes is that way if he ever got divorced, he'd have a lot that he could build his new house on. So we lived in a neighborhood with one vacant lot, and they planted trees on that lot, but no one ever took care of it. And they'd been there for about 10, 15 years. How do you get rid of a tree that's been there about 10, 15 years? You can cut it down, but how do you get rid of the stump? Well, you do like my dad. He backed up his truck, put a chain to the bumper, put a chain or to the frame of the vehicle, put a chain around the stump, and just ripped the thing out. It was hard work. And the psalmist is saying, that is what I want to be true of my sons. God, would you stabilize them? Would you make them so secure? They're like a plant that is thriving, that is just hard to move, hard to get out, hard to toss to and fro. Would you just stabilize them in place? Help God. And he says, may our daughters be like corner pillars cut for the structure of a palace. Anyone ever been to the White House or to Mount Vernon? Either of those, right? You know, if you ever go to those, you'll see this beautiful, massive columns in the front. Have you ever thought, why are those columns there? Partially, maybe to to hold up the the, uh, porch or to hold up the roof or hold up part of the structure. But, but you could easily do that with a, a two by four or four by four. Or there, there's no need to, to do all the ornate artwork around them. It's because when you see those pillars and you come up to the house, it draws you in. They're beautiful, aren't they? It makes the house pop. And the psalmist is saying, Lord, let my daughters be the kind of women. Girls, may you become the kind of women. Wives, may you be the kind of woman that when people look at your family, your character, your love for Jesus just makes the whole family pop. You see what he's asking? It's interesting the interplay between a husband and wife. Because there's a reality that dad set the tone for the house. And there's a reality, there's something to the statement, if mama's not happy, nobody's happy, right? There's a reality that both a man and a woman have the ability to structure the home in such a way that either honors God or causes people to revolt from who God is. And dads, it's our role to be praying for our kids, but it's also our role to engage our kids and help them to be the man or woman that God wants them to be, that they might be firmly planted and that they might add to the beauty of God's family. 
But then he doesn't just stop there. He's not just stopping at the people. Notice the kind of blessings he's wanting. Verse 13, he's then pleading, God, may our granaries be full. May you provide all kind of produce. May our sheep bring forth thousands and ten thousands from our fields. May our cattle be heavy with young, suffering no mishap or failure in bearing. What's he doing? He's pleading that God would give them peace. He's pleading that God would be on the lookout for any enemy and strike them down. Are you doing that? You know, if you're not careful, you can turn on the news and you can think North Korea is our enemy. You can turn on the news and think Russia, China, name your country, is our enemy. How many of us think that the very thing we turned on actually is our enemy? Ever think about that? The very thing that we have gotten on, the very device that we've gotten on, has the ability to wreak havoc in our lives. The whole pop culture out there is created in some ways to eradicate and to try to hurt our love for Jesus Christ. Are you fighting against that? Are you putting barriers to to be thoughtful of what your family takes in? Are you protecting your own heart and your family's heart that that we might grow and love and know Jesus? Because it seems like the psalmist is. He's thinking about any type of enemy that might be out there, anything that might ruin peace, and he's just pleading, God, give us peace. Don't let the animals die. Don't let... Uh, locusts eat our field. Don't let the enemies torch the place. We've got to be a people who are mindful of the enemies today and pleading with the Lord. And he says in 14, you know, second half of 14, he says, even no cry of distress in our streets. And he just says a, a blessing upon those who follow God. Do you see that? He says, blessed are the people to whom such blessings fall. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying the ultimate blessing comes not from the cattle, not from the grain, not from kids. The ultimate blessing comes when we actually make God Number one. It's interesting if you turn all the way back to Psalm chapter one, the whole book is started on this idea of blessing. He says, There blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree. He's planted by streams of water and that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Church, the psalmist is picking up that same theme in Psalm 144 and saying, it is those who look to God, those who run to him, those who are planted near him, those who meditate on his word, those who think about God regularly, pleading with God to show up. 
it is those who experience the blessing of the Lord. I've been reading a book on uh, prayer in the last couple of days, and in that book, it just talks about the reality that there is so much blessing offered to us, and yet we miss out. You know why we miss out? Because we're too distracted by everything else but prayer, but a dependence upon God in prayer. And so this morning, the psalmist is saying, there is an enduring value right before you. I mean, it is, it is within grasp. And it is offered to you and I. It is the value of the grace of God. It is offered to those who recognize they can't do it, but God did it for them. The question is, is are we going to humble ourselves to bless the Lord Or are we going to keep trying in our own might, in our own ways, thinking that other things might give us a value greater than God's grace? Let's pray. Father, this morning as we've looked at your word, we just ask now that you would drill truths deep into us, that you would help us to see, help us to understand, help us to get a greater sense of what you have spoken to us. Lord, we know even in a room like this this morning, as warm as it is and difficult as it might be to focus, we know that your spirit is greater, and so we just plead and ask that you'd show us. Father, where we are running to something else for enduring value, to satisfy, to bring joy, Father, may we forsake that and turn back to you knowing that joy only comes from seeing your grace. Remind us, God, of the past grace that you've given to us and allow that to propel us to to cling to your present grace and to look forward in, in hope and anticipation and eagerness at your future grace, Father. We pray. We need you this morning. We ask in your son's precious name. Amen.